Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. The book is titled Rez Rules, R-E-Z, Rules, My Indictment of Canada's and America's Systemic Racism Against Indigenous People. The book is by Chief Clarence Louis, Chief of the Osoyoos Indian Band in the Okanagan Valley in British Columbia. Chief Louis was first elected in 1984. He was in his 20s. He's been elected 19 more times consecutively. The Osoyoos Indian Band is also known as the Miracle in the Desert, as the First Nation changed from struggling with poverty into becoming an economic powerhouse. Chief Louis believes economic and business independence is key to self-sufficiency, reconciliation, and justice for First Nations people. Also writes about systemic racism against Indigenous people. And uh, Chief Louis will be in Toronto next Tuesday for a book signing. We'll tell you more about that as we go through the segment. Now, I had an opportunity, and I actually wanted to avail myself of that opportunity to call the chief last Thursday evening, not scheduled, because I've been reading his book, and I've read it cover to cover. It is an amazing book. It's about um, life, about principled life, about success, about being driven, about staying on focus, and about doing things correctly. Chief Louis, thank you very much for coming on the program. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. It's great to talk to you again, and I just felt compelled to call you because your book is so uh, powerful and motivating. And I, I want to start with this. Um, the Osoyoos Indian Band has been called the miracle in the desert. You have more jobs than people. Great commercial success. And you detail the successes uh, internationally. But it took a letter from a grade four girl named Sienna, which contained five questions to persuade you it was time to write your book, Res Rules. What was it about that little girl that connected with you? Well, I've gotten those type of requests before, I mean, many years ago. And so I've, I've gotten those type of requests before. But now that I'm in my 60s, um, uh, maybe at the time I was 59, I, uh, I decided, you know, I'm in my last quarter. And, um, you know, it's now or never. And I've been asked to write a book for at least a decade or more because of all my travels throughout North America and speaking on First Nation economic development and um, reconciliation even before that word was even brought up. And then when I got back from that, uh, those uh, questions from that little girl that I haven't had a chance to meet yet, I just decided, you know, I, I, I'd write them in a lot more detail than a grade three or four student would need. I shared them with my, my staff here and council members and my daughter and my kid, my kids. And it was my daughter that also said, dad, you should write a book. So that was the, uh, last, uh, motivation that I needed came from my daughter. So as I'm reading your book, I keep going back to the reason for you writing it, this little girl. And you write you have distrust and anger and disappointment for Canada and the United States, but you still love both nations. And you point out that First Nations have been generationally subjected to systemic racism. Would you just explain that? Put that, put that together for us, please. How do you reconcile your feelings and how should the reader of Res Rules understand your feelings going through the book? Well, the reality of the history, most people don't study history or even realize the history of those two flags and where they came from. 
But North America was going to be colonized by somebody eventually. I mean, uh, the Spanish weren't, in fact, in many ways, the, the Spanish were worse towards indigenous people than the French and the English were. So, I mean, we, we our lands were going to be colonized by, by some European empire, as they called them back then, the uh, British Empire, the French Empire. Imperialism was what those countries did uh, back back in the you know, 1400s or whatever century it was. And fact is, um, First Nations people weren't viewed as human beings, and that's what justified uh, the taking of our land and, and the extermination and the wars and the uh, all the bad things that the French and the English did to Native people in North America. You know, when you have a country like Canada and the U.S. and uh, still boasting about uh, being beacons of freedom and justice, well, the the fact is, those countries were based on systemic racism, systemic racism, and uh, termination and assimilation and genocide through through residential schools and and boarding schools and broken treaties and even our veterans in World War II, the Canadian Indigenous veterans, the First Nation people that that enlisted at a far greater greater number than any other race of people in World War One and World War Two weren't looked at as Canadian citizens. They didn't even have the right to vote. Yet yet they still went and and defended this country. And when they got back, they didn't even get the land scripts or the benefits that other non native veterans got. So the systemic racism even went into how First Nation veterans have been treated in this country. So, so we're learning, uh, I think a lot of people are maybe learning for the first time more about the Native heritage and culture and have over the last year, year plus. Uh, you write that Native heritage and culture are a must to be integrated into business practice. And you remind that cultural responsibility is a critical part of a Native business plan. You've been extremely successful economically with businesses at the Oswegus Indian Band, extremely successful. How how does how does heritage and culture fit into the business plan? Of course, it isn't easy in in, in the modern context. Um, but just take forestry for example. The uh, the biggest problem with any any industry, um, like forestry or, or, or gas or, or mining. Non-native companies want to maximize everything. They want to maximize returns. They want to maximize the annual cut. When we're involved in forestry, we don't want to maximize the cut. We want to keep farther away from creeks and streams. We don't want to maximize the annual allowable cut. We want to leave more trees standing. We just want to make enough to pay our bills and make a bit of a profit. But uh, the the problem with with this with with, with capitalism if they try and maximize everything, you, you, you don't need to maximize everything. Yeah, I, I have so much. I've, I've put together so much from your book, so much information. I have so many notes here about what you what you wrote that I feel are important to me to to read and and absorb. But you also write, and we talk a lot about politics in this country now. We've just come through a federal election, and we talked about that in the last hour. You write about politics on the res. 
And you're right, politics are a blood sport compared to general political experiences in the rest of Canada. And because people know each other so very well and have generationally. So how does the council, how do you as chief, work with the council, um, with the reality of, of, of politics as a blood sport on the, res, on the reserve, on the res, and at the same time manage to create this great economic success? How, how do you put all of that together? Well, in, in any democracy, and that's what we're under right now, on the Indian reserves, you have to realize that, that our constituents never change. Um, there are no parties on the res, or there shouldn't be. I'm sure behind the scenes there's, you know, people band together. But and um, but it's but it's all about leadership. It's all about um, building relations. You have to build relations. You, there, there's there's so many circles that you have to jump through. And I always tell the American the American councils next to us, your guys' politics is easy compared to on the reserve politics because our constituents never change. And if somebody gets mad at you when they're when they're a teenager, they'll probably carry that into their when, when they're an adult, I mean, are their family. So there's, there's different dynamics around Indian Reserve elections on both sides of the border. And um, we have to look after our people from cradle to grave. We're responsible for their livelihood, for their standard of living from cradle to grave. So our constituents are looked at. And, and, and I see more and more that Native people are calling their people citizens. I, I actually don't like that. They're not citizens. They're our people. You know, we're, we're starting to get so, I guess, brought into the non-Native way of, elect, of, of electioneering and phony politics and Facebook. I actually hate Facebook when it comes to elections. Um, I'm old school. You know, if you're going to say something to somebody, don't say it with your fingers. Say it with your voice. You have to talk to people. Face-to-face is the best way. If you can't do that, then voice-to-voice. Not this Facebook and not being keyboard keyboard warriors and being willing to say something to somebody that you wouldn't say to their face. You know, there's a lot of chicken shit that goes on when, you, when, you, when you're screening or, or being a screenager. I heard that term a few months ago. Everybody's a screenager now. You just go to their screen, whether it's their phone or their computer, and they just mouth off all the time, even about stuff that they don't even have a clue about. You know, it's just it's just gotten so bad now with with our with our people and even even society in general that everybody thinks they're an expert on everything and they just want to screen age all the time. The book is called The Res. So life on the res, what do you want the reader to understand? Because you walk us through your life and and your experiences on the res to becoming the chief at a very young age and what you, uh, what you brought to running the council and operating the council as a business. So what do we need to know? What do you want people to understand? And then tell us, please, about the economic successes that you've been able to uh, put together, create for Osoyoos. Well, I, I like most Canadians to understand that there's not a... There, wherever you live in Canada, if you're, if you're south of the 60th parallel... Um, or north of the 49th, there's an Indian reserve not far from you. And the sad fact in this country, just like the U.S., still half the reserves or reservations are just like third world conditions. They're, they're very poor. And, and there's many like Osuyus that, that aren't. I mean, we're, we're at Osuyus, we're getting involved in the business world, and that's where I spend most of my time 
time is um, trying to do joint ventures, uh, becoming economically strong. And that's what any country wants to do. I don't care. All G8 countries want to be economically strong. And that's the foundation of their success is having good governance and having having an economy rather than having having to depend on foreign aid. But the sad fact is, is in one of the richest countries in the world, two of the richest countries in the world, many Indian reserves reservations still depend too much on foreign aid from, in this case, the federal government. And there's a, and there's a lot of injustices around that, you know, broken treaties, Indian reserve land ripoffs. I mean, when there was abandoned BC, that just got awarded over a hundred million dollars because of Indian reserve land ripoffs. Uh, and, and even as you've seen Dan, we, the, uh, provincial federal government took two of our old reserves away and we want one of them back. To me, reconciliation starts with the land and it doesn't start with apologies or nice gestures, land acknowledgements. It starts with the land and the land and the, the land injustices of the past, getting our old reserves back and um, financial settlements because good words don't build houses or, or send my people to, to school. Everything costs money, and as, our old, as my mom and grandma taught me, everything costs money from cradle to grave. So we don't need any more good words or apologies. We need enough money to run our governance properly and to become independent. That's how Canada and America operates. And I, I want the Canadian people to understand that land claims are just not, not something that we pull out of the air. Now that we're able to hire lawyers, and if you can believe it or not, the, the Canadian government had a rule that we couldn't hire law- lawyers to defend ourselves uh, many decades ago. And that, and that again, is a form of systemic racism. And now our people are, are winning Supreme Court of Canada court decisions, and we're starting to hold the Canadian government in the, this country um, bringing our cases to justice which is there's a long backlog of broken treaties and, uns- and unsettled land claims in this country. Yeah, and when we do, there's, you write about the uh, about Indian affairs in, uh, in the book, in Res Rules, the federal agency that has spent billions of dollars and doesn't get very much accomplished. I, I get the feeling they spend most of the money on themselves. Um, do you have a sense that there is going to be reconciliation, that there will be an improvement in the relationship, that there is actually going to be, well, let's go back to the word reconciliation, that it will in fact happen? In some cases it is happening. As I mentioned, some some bands are finally getting their, their, their land claims settlements dealt with. It's taken a long, long time. We still have some outstanding issues here with the provincial and, and federal government. But our people shouldn't have to grow old at the, at the negotiating table. You know, our people shouldn't have to grow up poor and grow up with un, under underfunded programs. I mean, every, every program that the federal government, you have to realize there's still over $8 billion being spent on Aboriginal programming in this country. Mm-hmm. And it's a ridiculous formula that they've kept for a hundred years of ninety to ninety-five percent social spending, and only five percent on economic development. I mean, it's a failed formula. I mean, what kind of country puts its puts its economy last? Right. No successful country does. 
Joining us on the program is Ujjal Dessange. He's the former Premier of British Columbia, also the former Federal Health Minister. I always like to talk to the Premier when it comes to issues that affect all of us. In this case, it specifically affects his constituency. And I believe, Premier, it's still your constituency, constituency emotionally. Uh, the scope of the flooding, can you give us an idea, a sense of what this is doing to your province? And if you were Premier today... What would you be most engaged with? Well, first of all, it is devastating uh, to see what's happening in British Columbia. Um, it has been expected. It has been anticipated, um, except that we now find out that we weren't really ready uh, for the kind of emergency um, that has hit us. I've never seen anything like this in British Columbia. I've been here since 1968. Even in India, I last remember seeing something like this in 1959 when it rained for seven days and the mud house in which I was living, uh, not an inch of it was uh, dry. Um, so, you know, this is exceptionally um, difficult for British Columbians. Uh, we've been cut off from uh, Canada. We've been cut off from other parts of British Columbia um, and and people have lost um, their homes. Uh, their animals, the farmers have lost the ability to make a living for a long time. Um, and the, um, the the tragedy is that that this was uh, it was expected that something like this would happen. And there was a report going back to 2015 that talked about the dike um, and the dikes, um, but the dike in particular that broke in Sumas. Um, and and there was a local report in in, in Abbotsford um, um, from last year that that said that you know if if there's overtopping if the water overflows uh, the dikes are likely to break and um, you know one of the things that 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 hurts me is that our alert system failed we didn't alert people um, and I'm not critical I, I just I'm stating this as a fact I think the government was slow uh, to declare a national uh, de declare an emergency um they they expected this rain we all knew it was coming um and now uh, now we find out that we weren't really ready and that's part of the problem not being ready is that emergency preparedness um generally speaking has been an afterthought I remember when I was the Attorney General in British Columbia in the um, in, in mid '90s to 2000. I uh, we we were um, ex doing exercises and drills to deal with um, an earthquake. Um, even then, I don't remember we were uh, preparing at that time for um, floods. Um, but since then, um, the climate change has picked up. And uh, and we should have been ready. It's also part of the difficulty is that that these responsibilities are spread across government. Um, you, you know, the, the police are different, and and the emergency preparedness is different, and and different agencies, and sometimes that they lack coordination. And uh, for for situations like this, what we're going to need, uh, I believe, in the future is a, a standing uh, national task force that brings all of the things needed together provincially and federally and is ready at a moment's notice 
to um, drop military personnel and equipment into areas to support the people. Um, it's taken time for this to happen this time, and uh, it's hurting us. It's hurting people. Yeah, and, and we're also in a difficult time internationally because there's the supply chain challenges. And I was wondering earlier today, and I'm glad you spoke about this, Premier, I'm just wondering, as the province tries to literally dig itself out of the situation it's in and and get the water to recede and start to rebuild, will that international supply chain challenge affect the ability for British Columbia to, again, dig itself out of the current reality? I, I think it will. I mean, already we have uh, a rationing of the uh, of the gas, gasoline uh, rationing, um, at least until December one, um, and uh, and you know there were lineups at gas stations last night. Um, I watched like everybody else on television, and it was quite you know it's depressing to see in British Columbia, you say, and that's um, you know. Um, I, I mean, we have lost at least one life. We've lost animals, lost cattle. Um, farms are underwater. Homes are um, flooded. Uh, people are homeless. Um, and this is a time for us to come together provincially and nationally uh, to deal with it and then make a commitment to ourselves uh, um, and, and take a pledge that we will coordinate our services and will coordinate our uh, our responses um, uh, to these kinds of issues uh, nationally and, and provincially in, in future. Now, the political will has to be there. Of course it has to be. And, uh, and you know, I, I'm, I'm sure the politicians have been worried about this kind of stuff, but, but at least on the surface, we really haven't seen uh, uh, much in terms of public preparation um, you know, we, we were hit with the, with the fires. Um, a whole town was uh, was made desert, black desert, um, town of Lytton. And now we have towns like um, Merritt and others underwater, and people have lost everything. And um, that's difficult. I mean, that should send a, a, a warning to all across Canada um, that that we need to be in it together. Um, in terms of preparations, in terms of taking responsibility individually and collectively. Yeah, the Premier is asking uh, President Biden to be ready for the United States to help British Columbia with gas supply. Uh, I'm seeing emails from British Columbians, frankly, and I've seen a number already since we signed on, saying, look, we had the opportunity, and I don't want to cause, so to take have this slide sideways and bring in sidebars, that are irrelevant at this particular emergent moment. But I'm seeing emails from people saying, look, if we had pipelines, if we had appropriate uh, movement of, uh, of oil, we, we wouldn't be potentially in the situation we're in, at least as far as uh, appropriate uh, supplies of transportation, gasoline for transportation is concerned. Well, that, that, that's true, but, but that, that, you know, that, that then um, creates a conflict with climate change. I mean, these are issues that we have to, we have to contend with until we can find a, a replacement, um, a, a complete replacement for the fuels that we use. Um, we, we need to have those pipelines in place so that we don't have to depend on the United States or anybody else. I mean, right now, I think some of the supplies from uh, eastern parts of Canada, including Alberta, are going to have to be uh, brought in by the United States into British Columbia 
into southern British Columbia. And what was the biggest province-wide challenge or emergency that you faced as premier? Well, there were, there were floods in, in, in small towns, but those were uh, seasonal floods. And, uh, and you know, uh, I didn't really face uh, any huge emergency. When I became the Attorney General, uh, there, was, um, there was a blockade at Gustafson Lake that was, uh, that was consuming 400 police officers from all over, uh, um, all over Canada. Uh, that was the largest police operation in the history of the country till then. Um, and uh, police were facing AK-47s and guns. On the other hand, and there was there was a, a, a occupation of this particular private uh, ranch. Unfortunately, um, we were able to deal with that without bloodshed. But that was entirely a different kind of thing from what we face today. Yeah. Is, do you have a sense the federal government's doing all it should be doing? I mean, I said earlier, I'm being critical of the prime minister for not going to British Columbia. He says he'll go there when it's appropriate. Well, I think it would be appropriate now. I think it would be, but politicians are reluctant because when the prime minister comes, there is a question of security. There's a question of transportation. Then you're taking, then, you know, he'd be accused of taking resources away from the actual work that needs to be done unless he's going to put his boots on and, and come and help himself without anybody, without involving anybody else. I think it's better for him to stay away. That I, I think that that's quite appropriate. So as you know, uh, children between the ages of 5 and 11 are going to be uh, permitted to be vaccinated, the the Pfizer vaccine against COVID, Health Canada decision. It's uh, created quite a bit of discussion and and uh, controversy, and let's talk about this. Dr. Anna Banerjee joins us, pediatric infectious diseases specialist and associate professor of pediatrics at the Dalai Lama School of Public Health in Toronto. Dr. Banerjee, thank you very much for the time. Do you have any concerns yourself about potential dangers of vaccinating children as young as five years of age? Um, No. In general, I think that when I look at the risk of vaccine versus the risk of COVID, um, you know, clearly to me, vaccine is a safer option. Uh, Is there... Five years of age is extremely young, and I know that kids get uh, infants get vaccinated against um, MME, and uh, you know they get vaccinated very, very young, two, three, four, six months of age. But there, there is going to be resistance from parents. What's the what's the most fundamental? And I, you may have just said that, but I'll ask you to say it again. What's the most fundamental case for the vaccine for the parent who's hesitant? So I think that. Um um, you know, you look at protecting uh, the child. That's the, that's the primary reason to get vaccinated. Most children uh, at that younger age have mild COVID, but there are, you know, a significant number of kids who actually get more more ill with COVID. They can have uh, the inflammatory syndromes. They can have pneumonia. They can have uh, long COVID. And I think there have been about 2,000 kids hospitalized in Canada due to COVID, and there have been about a, just under 200 kids in the ICU. And those are kids with positive tests for COVID. There are kids that have COVID that end up in the hospital and they're tested negative. So one is to protect the child. The second thing is to uh, prevent the transmission from, from that child to the community. So other kids or teachers in the school, but also to bring it um, back home 
and to protect the people there, especially if there are elderly people or vulnerable people. And through that, you decrease the risk of it being transmitted uh, in the community. So hopefully that helps bring down the rates of COVID as you like we know, it's, it's going up in many parts of Canada. Um, the, the, the other thing is, um, you know, children have had a really hard year in the past 20 months. We're on and off again, and schools are opening and closing. So I think having the kids vaccinated reduces the chances of school or classroom outbreaks and, and tries to normalize the year and opens up opportunities for kids to have a normal life like go to movie theaters being fully vaccinated and restaurants and, and other things, or even play dates. Like some families will be able, feel a lot more comfortable knowing that the kids are vaccinated having play dates and sleepovers. So we're trying to normalize the kids' lives. What about the issue of uh, side effects? It's been talked about a lot as far as the vaccine for adults is concerned. Side effects for children, and there's a lot of development that takes place between, you know this far better than I, a lot of development takes place, physiological and otherwise, uh, in children between the ages of 5 and 11. What about side effects? Yeah, so the side effects are are actually from the study that Pfizer released was less than in the older group. So it's a sore arm, you know, muscle ache, you may get a fever, headache, those kinds of things. Again, it's a little bit less. Now, there is the risk of myocarditis it's pretty rare but it's it it is uh something that's out there and it tends to occur in adolescent males all the way up to the age of 30 and um so so but covid itself can cause inflammation and pericarditis um and myocarditis to a child as well um so the dose of the vaccine is lower and so they're they believe that that the risk for myocarditis and pericarditis are less um, for the younger age group. And some of these things, we don't really know why it's adolescent males, but they, they think that there's going to be less pericarditis and myocarditis in, in the younger children. Now, there are other risks that people are afraid of. For example, a lot of people talk about the developing child. Is it going to affect the risk of cancer? Is it going to affect fertility, et cetera? But then you have to understand how this vaccine works. And so the messenger RNA is given into the body, and it's like a recipe where it teaches the, the body to make proteins similar to the spike protein on the COVID. On COVID. So the body uh, sees these spike proteins and recognizes as being foreign and mounts an immune response. The messenger RNA actually uh, disintegrates, so the vaccine really doesn't exist. And so, because it affects the immune system, the you know, uh, when someone's exposed to COVID, they mount an immune response. Now, this vaccine, even though they're talking about RNA, is not uh, has nothing to do with human genetics. It doesn't interfere with human genetics at all. So when people say, well. Maybe it's going to cause cancer or infertility or things like that. There's no biological basis for that. There, there is the 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 risk, the small risk of pericarditis, myocarditis, but there's no reason to to believe, uh, or again, there's no biological basis for the vaccine to cause infertility and cancer and some of those other concerns. There's been a lot said and a lot written about children 
about their immune system being so robust that a COVID infection is going to be easily overcome by children. How true is that about the current strain of COVID? Is that is that fact that, that kids will generally get over COVID themselves uh, quite easily? And, and if that is uh, somewhat true, is the vaccine intended to not only protect the, the children, but also protect the adults around them? So, so it is generally true that most kids get COVID, and it is a mild infection. It might just be a runny nose, um, sneezing, coughing, you know, maybe fever for a day or two. It's usually not so severe in most children. But again, at least 2,000 kids have been admitted to hospital because of COVID. You've had 17 deaths. You've had uh, almost 200 kids in the ICU, so it's not insignificant. But also, there's the risk of someone getting COVID, a child getting COVID, even with small symptoms, them having long-term symptoms from COVID. And we don't know yet, you know, how many of the younger kids are, have long-haul uh, syndrome. But for the teenagers, it's between 2 and 10% have persistent symptoms of COVID. So that part of it is protecting that child. But the second part, as you said, is protecting the community around the child. So other children, the, the teachers, custodians, but also preventing that child from bringing it home uh, and infecting uh, people in, in, in the household, especially people who are vulnerable, someone who's elderly or immunocompromised, someone who's on cancer. So, you know, so it's really both the child and the community. So you're satisfied that the testing that was done was done appropriately, and you're satisfied that Health Canada made the correct decision in allowing for children between 5, five and 11 years of age to be vaccinated, and, and the responsibility or the decision should stay with the parent, yes? Yes. I think at, the, at this point in time that, um, well, I believe, yes, that it was the right decision to to approve this vaccine. And at this point in time, it, it is a parental decision. Now, I don't know what's going to happen in the future, and I have no say in it. Um, you know, if there's another, like you see what's happening in Europe with, with the lockdowns and reoccurrence, I hope that doesn't happen here. And I hope that this the worst is behind us. But, I, but I, yes, I think it is the right decision. I believe it is the right decision. And I believe that this is us moving forward in this battle against COVID. Dr. Banerjee, one more question for you. Are you finding that parents are generally receptive to the idea of children between the ages of 5 and 11 being vaccinated? So I think it depends on where you live. But, for example, uh, in Canada, they had an Ipsos Reid poll, and they said at least 50% would get their kids vaccinated right away. And I think in Toronto, two out of three parents would get their kids vaccinated right away. I think some parents want to see what happens. Like, for example, in the past two weeks, there have been 2.5 million kids vaccinated in the United States. And from what I hear, there's been no serious side effects due to the vaccine. So I think that I think parents need to feel satisfied with the information they have, because that's their number one job is really to protect their children. And so I think that if if Parents have concerns, for example, the idea of it causing cancer and fertility, and you say, no, there's no biological basis for that, uh, and they feel comfortable with that. Then I think more parents, when they get their answer, those questions answered, they will say, yes, this is the, the best thing I can do to keep my child safe at this point in time. So I, I think a lot of parents will come around. There will be some that won't, um, no matter what the evidence is. 
Um, but we hope that the majority of parents, uh, when they get their questions answered, will come around and get their kids vaccinated. So the primary beneficiaries, the three primary beneficiaries, as I understand it, of the offshore world, criminals, millionaires, and multinational corporations. Uh, may we take them one by one, beginning with how criminals make use of the offshore world? Well, first, thanks, thanks very much, Roy, for having me on. Um, you know, criminals have been making use of the offshore world for a, at least a century now. The Pandora Papers uh, kind of gave us the regular gallery of Dumimon characters that we normally see, uh, people involved in fentanyl sales, people involved in other illicit drug trafficking. Uh, in one case, there was an individual involved in the dark, uh, the dark web and had a, a, one of those marketplaces, like the old Silk Road marketplace. So those are regular crooks, but my article focuses on more the phenomena of how tax havens help crooks steal money from low-income and failed states, low-income countries and failed states. So in, in the paper, there's a bunch of examples, like uh, South Sudan, which is currently in um, the world's youngest country. It's been in the civil war now for about five years. Um, the, the United Nations has it under a starvation advisory, indicating that seven out of 10 million people are at risk of starvation. And at the same time, the uh, political leaders and uh, the warmongers are stealing billions of dollars in foreign aid, stealing billions of dollars in, in government resources. And then they hide the money in offshore tax havens. So tax havens are, there's over 30 of them in the world. And they do things like they, they set up corporations and trusts and that mask the identity of, of who owns the money. So that's, that's an overview of the crooks, Roy. Okay. Uh, and, and you also write that poor countries, as, and as you just said, the offshore world aids and abets the criminals. So when we move to the millionaires and the multinationals, where's the shady side of what they do? Well, the, it's less shady. Um, you know, let's start with multinationals. Opportunistic, then. So the corporations, I mean, my one of my bread and butter courses is teaching international tax, and then I teach my students how to tax plan with uh, for corporations. So it's, it's perfectly legal, and it, in fact, it's quite commonplace. So, Roy, if you were to take the first-class uh, plane out of Toronto to Barbados, uh, you would see it's filled with Canadian bankers and, and, and business people who are attending uh, quarterly director meetings in Barbados for tax purposes, in fact, and so it's, it's all our big banks, all our most of our big multinationals deploy corporations and other entities and tax havens, and they do this to save uh, on save on their global tax liability. So their shareholders demand it, and so the corporations do it and allow a laws it. But the, my my paper raises the issue though: if you know who is the main beneficiary when this happens? Well, it's normally the shareholders themselves. I mean that's slightly controversial. It could even be passed on to the workers, the, any tax debt. But if there's a tax debt that's relieved, it's the shareholders who normally benefit, and they tend to be wealthier Canadians. And so there too, these tax breaks for corporations are enhancing income inequality. Uh, if I can put a couple of pieces together from your piece uh, for McDonald Laurier. So um, the offshore money hiding or manipulation or opportunistically taking advantage of opportunity um, the offshore money manipulation may be leading to the fanning of anti-democratic sentiments. Now, we have a federal government 
the budget is you right more than a billion dollars to assist CRA and forcing Canadian tax law around offshore tax evasion, but Canada at the same time has a poor record of prosecuting offshore tax cheats. So the general sentiment, if I understand it correctly, is if they get away with it, maybe I will too, or I'll get away with what I can. And it isn't helped when we hear about, for example, wait staff being pursued by CRA because they're not a declaring all of their relatively small tips. Uh, yes, you're, you know, again, Roy, this is a, a great concern. Uh, normally, the, the folks are, are millionaires. If they're involved in, in merely just legal tax planning, that's one thing. But as the paper gets into, there's recent research, uh, mainly from Scandinavian um, economists, that suggests, in fact, these very wealthy families, billionaire families, have been engaged in the crime of tax evasion. So it's not legal tax planning, but many of these wealthy families have been hiding their money criminally offshore, and the government really never catches them. But you're right, the, uh, it, they go after low-hanging fruit. You know, they go after the wait staff. They, there's a big audit now on students who didn't file their addresses properly, even though students normally don't owe any uh, tax money. And, and at the same time, you know, they, they can't seem to catch any of these uh, big players, or if they do, it's extremely rare. And so the worry there is one of taxpayer morale, um, to the extent that average income taxpayers in Canada realize that there's two kind of enforcement regimes, one against regular folk and uh, another, a lack of enforcement rather, against very wealthy taxpayers, then they'll get demoralized and eventually they'll start, they'll, they'll be less likely to comply. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.